This is Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering, and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu made it through the yucky weather to get here in <laughs> oh, Studio dear. 2. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to see you, as always. You, too. Did you know yucky is a technical term? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Perfect description. For sure. Now, do you like this kind of w- the winter weather, the mixed kind of stuff that... Stings your nose and bites your toes, or the other way around, however that song I goes. live for the 75 to 85 temperature range. There so you this go. is my <laughs> turtle time. I know I don't I don't particularly enjoy it either, but welcome back. Nice to see. This is the new mic. It's fancy in here now. Yeah, yeah actually, you're supposed to have a poof on that thing that you don't. So we are going to do this real time. So I'm going to oh. take one of these fuzzy things. I'm rolling Roll, it across okay. the table to Marewoo. We are sticking it on. That's okay. what that sounds like. There we go. <laughs> Very nice. Um, lots to talk about today. Uh, and you've done a state of the city address this month. Uh, governor Maura Healy's done a state of the Commonwealth address. I had the governor on on Friday. I got you today. And so not surprisingly, very much what's on my mind is kind of the relationship between the city and the state. Uh, both of you declared uh, your uh, areas of care to be strong, right? So let me just start by asking you, do, um, the city and the state, are they both strong for the same reasons right now? Well, it, um, first, congratulations to the governor, a very powerful and um, really just beautifully delivered first state of the Commonwealth. And there were a lot of overlapping themes between our two um long remarks because we're working on a lot of the same issues together. I think it's widely acknowledged across the Commonwealth that housing is the pressing challenge, the MBTA and transportation in general, um, climate, child care, all the ways in which families are really still trying to get back on their feet and our economy is is kind of moving in the right direction, but still needing a lot of attention and intentionality. So um, I think in Boston, Yeah, I I would say that the reasons behind the strength of where we are as a community, a city, a state, are that in the face of tremendous national and global uncertainty and disruption, we have a really solid foundation here that is in large part driven by the coordination between different levels of government, different sectors, and all of the incredible partners we have here. Do you and the governor coordinate a lot? Do the two of you talk quite often? Yes. Yeah. And and how does that work? Like, do you have formal meetings set up? Or are you the two of you just texting buddies? How does it work? Um, I, you know, I think I've gone up to her office a couple times since she started, but um, our teams are in touch almost every day, if not multiple times a day on various issues that are popping up. She and I are on the phone or um, or or texting occasionally, or um, just trying to, you know, catching each other when we're in the same place for a few minutes on the side. Um, and is there any place where it's really quite different uh, for the city than the state in terms of, okay, the, Boston is strong because X, and that's really not true for the state, or the state is strong because X, and that's really not true for the city, or sort of a existential concern for one of the two. And I don't mean that like we're better because I mean, you know, real real strengths or challenges that are different for the municipality than for the Commonwealth. Um, I think in many ways, I mean, Boston, for example, has a concentration of um, so many of the challenges that might appear in other places, but really for us are more make or break because of the density and the... Um, the kind of scale of the challenges. Public transportation, for example, statewide is a challenge. We need more resources. 
all the way from east to west to connect our communities. But in Boston, when the MBTA is the success and stability and the reliability and um, functionality of the T determines everything related to traffic. I mean, there, it, it's just so central to how we can grow, how we can keep things going, how we can ensure that there's access to what we're building. Um, and similarly with housing, we are actually doing so much on the housing front in terms of um, streamlining processes, making sure we're putting resources, putting city land on the table, getting development going however we can, making sure it's affordable. But one community alone cannot bear the entire responsibility of the housing crisis in a very connected ecosystem among housing. So I know the state is working to enforce, and the attorney general also working to enforce the MBTA communities law that would push for zoning to allow more um, predictability around housing density on communities right by public transit. There's more work to do, and I'm part of a Metro Mayor's Coalition where housing is a big focus as well, and everyone trying to come together around shared goals and shared progress. But there's, um, I think, some level of issues where we are working on, the state is also working on, but sometimes it feels very much that we can do as much as we possibly can, and we are, and then we still need to rely on regional or statewide support so that that can actually be felt across every community. We're talking with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu here uh, in Studio 2. Okay, so you just talked about transportation and you talked about housing. Let's do both of those now. Mm-hmm. Let's dive further. And with housing, I'm, I'm going to do housing and development. We'll start in the housing space. You just said, you know, one community alone can't bear the whole burden of the housing crisis. Uh, the governor has proposed the Affordable Homes Act, uh, uh, more than $4 billion in uh, a bond bill and a number of other measures. Does it have what you need in it? There are some really important pieces in there that uh, I testified uh, at the State House to support and, and to um, call for action on, um, whether that's funding for different pockets of resources that go to cities um, to help advance our projects like our office to residential conversion program downtown or to make more funding available for um, particular types of affordable housing, like housing for seniors or um, de-restricted housing that we've already been able to receive some support from the state on. There's also provision for a transfer fee, which would be very important in the city of Boston as a way to keep our progress going as the federal recovery funds phase out. That's basically a tax on certain uh, size sales. Yep. And what Boston has proposed is slightly different from the state's proposal. So we would stick to our implementation, which is at at a higher threshold. And this needs to be customized across each city. But the idea that it's actually on the table now is really important for every municipality. Um, and I would just say, you know, should all of that pass, it would go a long way. And then we still need to do more. We're seeing the impacts of a housing crisis in just about every part of people's daily lives and in the other major issues that the Commonwealth and the city are struggling with. With the migrant crisis, for example, ultimately, this is about a housing affordability issue, right? If it were that residents, you know, longtime residents, Um, or the tens of thousands of families who are currently on the Boston Housing Authority's wait list for public housing, if it were that we didn't have such a housing crunch, it wouldn't be such a challenge to figure out how do we accommodate now 
30 families a day coming in, you know, thousands of families over a period of months. And, and that is all, you know, the challenges that we have so do you uh, with the opiate s- crisis. And do you want to see the governor change the guidelines and rules around the emergency shelter system? Like, do you want to see people in, in shelter shorter periods of time? When you say we need to do more, I mean, there's no, there's no rent control or rent stabilization in that proposed act. What are you looking for? I, I think the resources from the state to continue funding cities is a big, big deal, and we need to push forward. I We have our own set of reforms that we've pushed up to the state level after passing that at the city council, which include rent stabilization, which would provide immediate relief from the most egregious types of rent increases while also allowing for continued uh, housing production and growth. We have some proposals up to reform the BPDA or to uh, change the structure so that we can have more clarity and a modernized mission to address not the 50s and 60s mission of eradicating so-called urban blight and decay, but focused on affordability and resilience and equity. And um, we just need more coordination, fewer barriers to be able to build housing and to build it in the right way, where it's energy efficient and climate resilient. And it still often feels like there's so many hoops that we're trying to just uh, navigate through. So, for example, not being able to do what you wanted to do around uh, n- no natural gas in new development because you didn't qualify as one of the 10 cities. That's right. To have only 10 cities out of all of the communities in the Commonwealth be able to have full control over setting their policies when it comes to the basics of creating healthy and energy efficient housing, we are now having to find all different workarounds to get to the same end result, but through a lot more uh, Pieces of work, pieces of legislation at the so city level that end up con- feeling a little bit patchwork. So we're doing this through zero net carbon zoning, for example, to catch a certain portion of buildings and then incentivize smaller buildings through another package. And it all adds up, but it would be a lot easier and a lot clearer and simpler and faster if we could just. Um, have more of that authority accumulate at the local level. Speaking with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu here in Studio 2, um, you talked about the home rule petition that you have uh, to the legislature for, you know, uh, uh, redoing the BPDA, the Boston Planning and Development Authority. You testified last week about that. Um, I, 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 I honest to God, haven't decided how deep we're going to go into that yet because <laughs> it's super confusing. But I think I, one question I know I want to ask you is, Did you get the response you wanted during that testimony? Do you think you're going to get what you want from Beacon Hill on this? Well, testimony is always more one directional. So it's it's mostly about sharing an opportunity for the public to share why it's important. And um, I was very glad to be able to do that alongside our chief of planning, Arthur Jemison, as well as some um, local elected officials and other advocates. Um, We had the... The committee at the legislature had some very good questions, very thoughtful questions that we were able to go back and forth on. Um, but I didn't, you know, there was no firm answer at that hearing as 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 there never is at, at any real hearing. So this I, is key for you. This is a this is a really key for you. So who do you need to call? Whose office do you need to go to? Like, we will is, try to. Is work there anybody where every, you're like bam, 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 bam on their <laughs> we'll door? Try about to work this? every channel. So again, here's an instance where. Um, I would say there are probably five or six major pieces to what I mean when we talk about BPDA reform and transforming our planning and development and zoning system for greater clarity and and the results that our residents deserve. 
Two of those pieces are legislative. So it is a state piece that we've testified on that would end urban renewal, um, preserve the benefits that um, happened under urban renewal that are codified with certain open space or affordability restrictions. So those will just evaporate, even though we're moving on. Modernize the mission of the um, development process to be, again, not urban blight and decay, which really doesn't is an outdated um, way of thinking of things. Um, and also streamline some of the structure so that we can move forward more simply. Today, we are filing at the city council level the other half of the legislative actions, which is an ordinance to codify the staff transition and for the first time in decades, create a city planning department. Most cities around the country have a city planning department that helps coordinate all of the activities, um, engage community members in understanding the needs with data analysis and needs assessment, and then codify that in the zoning code so that they can regulate the built environment. And you can do that whether the home rule petition passes at the legislature level or not. Um, I I know you're aware of uh, some reporting and uh, some community letters from community organizations not loving this concentration uh, within the city, saying that, you know, it's hard to get to you, it's hard to get to city agencies, this will consolidate power in the city. And I know you responded to that and said that you don't think that's uh, a problem. Say it here. Respond here to these pushbacks that this is going to make it harder for community voice and community control. Yeah, I mean, it's um, anytime there are changes, I know it always comes with a little bit of anxiety of what, what will be the unintended consequences or what are the ways that we're not anticipating that aren't being discussed uh, where we might feel our lives, you know, we figured out the system, even if we don't like it and we've been fighting against it, but what if the next system is not better in certain ways? And so I completely um, understand our obligation to be as communicative as possible about how we are going to not only lay this out in the legal language, but then implement it as well. And you know, for many, many years, even before running for mayor, I had worked with community activists and really in some ways picked up the torch from generations ago about the need for more community-connected, transparent, and accountable development in Boston. This is not, this is not a new issue that we are talking about uh, today, but decades back, people have been saying power was consolidated in the then BRA or now called BPDA. And it was not accountable because unlike every other city department where they go through a full vetting for their budget through the city council and the administration with other standard you know, procedures, they are off the books of the city. And therefore, there was the only the BPDA could decide its own budget without the need for any of the standard process. And so that was really my big promise in putting this forward as a campaign issue and now following through is that we need to have that same level of coordination, transparency, and accountability for this major set of functions that define land use and the built environment in Boston. And by moving it over to the city, it it already subjects that agency and its functions to a whole new level of accountability, just like 
the transportation department, the housing department, and every other office. So before we move off of this, and and again, you know, today we're kind of looking at: Are you getting what you need from the state? Uh, where are you not getting what you need from the state? Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the the conversion of downtown office to, to housing. Um, and uh, the Boston Globe's Shirley Leung today uh, in, in the print edition had an article looking at kind of foot traffic is starting to come back. Um, retail spending is actually coming back faster even than foot traffic. Um, are you feeling a great sense of urgency about the conversion downtown? Is it on track? Like, I'm guessing you have a dashboard with hash marks about where you wanted downtown to be in terms of foot traffic, empty space, and spending. Are you in the green? Is everything hitting the numbers you want? Are you in the yellow? Are you in the red? Um, In terms of the particular program to convert empty office buildings into residential, we are right on track. And in fact, um, pleasantly surprised by how quickly the uptake has happened. And, you know, we're now we're at eight different buildings totaling a little uh, somewhere around 170 units of new residential housing that would be created in, in, in a relatively small footprint downtown. We need more, but the fact that we've seen this interest and are able to now move into discussing how to actually make that happen, that is a wonderful place to be in a program that really doesn't have a lot of precedent around the country and is a... Um, a really significant shift with a lot of resources required for someone, for a property owner to completely convert their building usage, add all the plumbing for individualized units and uh, think about all that. So once these um, 170 units in some ways are also a template for how we can be creative about exactly what will be needed to speed this up as we continue to go. So that's a green. That's a green. In terms of foot traffic and um, vitality, you know, there are some really bright spots. The gigantic clown heads are sort of a symbol of... Terrifying, <laughs> by the way. Are a symbol Sorry. of the excitement and buzz that... This is the public art installation for people who don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, the downtown bid, right at downtown crossing. And um, it just, we need to be able to give people things to talk about, things to see, things to do downtown, because there are still major barriers that stand in the way. One is that... Um, Transportation is is the number one reason why commuters are not coming back in person as many days a week as they had been before. Uh, the flexibility of Zoom allows for that, but we hear a lot of appetite from employers and from employees that they want to be in person, but the stress of not being able to count on the train coming or, or knowing that if you miss this one, it's another hour, hour and a half. It's just that is the driving factor. Our hour and a half would be the commuter rail. And, of course, the Green Line w- w- was on shuttle service for the downtown area just back open today as part of this big slow zones uh, project. And sometimes there's a little bit of difference between perception and reality. We all know it's a big problem. And then sometimes it can then become this self-perpetuating feeling of, well, I'm not, I'm not even going to try because I know it's a, an issue. So I've actually started a series of um, – Commute with me with our residents. Yes, yeah, so um, <laughs> I'm just going to put a pin in that because okay. we're going to talk about that. Okay, in a it's so, been it's okay. been wonderful and wild fun and fun. Uh, but anyway, we are going to start to really absorb the financial impacts of the change in downtown over the next two years or so. The city of Boston's budget, our our public um, government resources and and services are funded almost three quarters by property taxes, and so when we see downtown office buildings selling for sometimes 90% below market value or their assessed value, 
it means that in this next round of assessments, we are going to see some property values drop in the commercial side, which then affects the residential rates. And and I think we're going to try to steel ourselves to maybe take some action to smooth that transition. But it's all interconnected. And as we have the... Um, as we're trying to build up downtown into more residential, more activity, the corresponding shift in what's happening with commercial buildings is is arriving now. And so it's a lot to balance in, in all the next couple so months. So yellow, red, or I think when you put those two colors together, it's orange. Yeah, I would say we're solidly in the yellow, okay. tinging on orange um, when it comes to moving fast enough okay. on getting folks back downtown and public transportation is the key factor there. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering, and we are talking about a wide range of issues with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu here as we look at a month in which we saw the state of the city, we saw the state of the Commonwealth. So now let's look at the state of the relationship uh, and if the city of Boston is getting everything it needs from the state. Um, and we had just teased a little bit about transit and transportation. Um, we did notice in Instagram that you have started this process of taking some rides with people. Um, here's a little bit of sound from your first commute with somebody in the city of Boston. We picked this up of, off of Instagram. Hello, I'm Becky. I am a ninth grade humanities teacher at Josiah Quincy Upper School, which is right in Bay Village. So we're about to get on the 501. How does this usually go? It varies. I think the bus is a few minutes behind. How long do you usually have to wait? If I miss the first bus, I'm waiting a solid 15 minutes for the next one. And yeah, it's cold. We have the bus shelter here, but not heated. It is not one of the heated ones. And it was more than a solid 15 minutes, and you were <laughs> That's right. So why are you doing this? You know, I have been commuting for years, and it's always been eye-opening to see the gap sometimes between policies that are put on the table or even how issues are discussed compared to the real-life daily experiences of people who are just on those trains and buses every single day. And so... You know, I know certain parts of the system very well, the Orange Line and the buses from Roslindale, but um, this is an opportunity now. I've made a commitment. I've been planning this with my team. They've been holding me back until we were ready through State of the City. But a couple times a week, I will uh, just ride with a Boston resident from wherever their day starts into wherever they're going. Um, Becky was going from Brighton to Bay Village in order to get settled in her classroom as a, as a BPS teacher um, at the... Later, a half of last week, I think we're finishing this video as well, I rode with Miss Celestine, who is a uh, medical assistant at a community health center, and, and we rode in from Fields Corner to South Boston by red line and then bus and lots of you know changing and waiting and lots of stairs in between. So the goal is that I'll get to see exactly what is happening in order for us to advocate for the changes that are needed and also to share the real current state of how the transportation system is. All right. So I'm glad that you talked about this gaps between policy and reality, right? Because one of the things that I do want to talk to you about is you have you have a pilot for fare-free buses. Uh, it was with pandemic money. It's supposed to expire at the end of February. You have said you want to extend it. And of course, the governor last week releases uh, her budget. It's not there. It is low-income fares. Instead, the MBTA has said it's going to launch this low-income fare pilot. There is a real difference there. Um, and if the state is doing low-income fares, that means the state's not interested in free fares. Um, th those are very different agendas. So talk about that. Well, I don't. I wouldn't 
actually wouldn't say that they are different agendas. They are um, two different steps along the same spectrum of trying to reduce financial barriers for residents. And I have been for loudly fighting for both in the past. And so as this uh, low income discounted fare for low income residents has come up in the past, it actually several years ago had advanced all the way through the MBTA board and the legislature and then was vetoed by uh, a previous administration at the state level. Um, and we had all sorts of rallies and we're pushing. So um, and Governor Healy, in her platforms around transportation, had committed to both uh, moving forward on the discounted fare for low-income residents and identifying a pathway for fare-free bus. And so, in fact, they're moving on uh, that first piece now. And they've also, as she's launched a uh, task force to think about fare policy in general, because the reality is that transit agencies all around the country are having to rethink how they can sustainably continue to fund their operations. It just cannot happen with the fares that come in on from ridership. And um, that's that's the truth, and that's the reality, that they're going to find other sources of funding. And then so the question so, is, as they're doing that, how will these other pieces fit in? So you think that Governor Healy and General Manager of the MBTA, Phil Eng, may still or are open to, later down the road, free fares as well. It's definitely not an either or situation. And in fact, in in my kind of idealized version of what is the most realistic next steady state for full access, you know, the maximizing the access to the MBTA while recognizing the difficulties of financing and helping to move the system forward, it is that we should have a discounted low-income fare across subway and commuter rail. And then have fare-free bus because the the money you have to put in to collect the fares is significant, and the proportion, the the percentage of what you get back when you are putting in the resources for for inspectors to check the fares or the other boxes and machinery and this and that, it is not a great return on that in terms of bus fares. It is very expensive, relatively speaking, to collect fares on the bus because you're only getting back a little bit more, and they're you know, it, now they would move to a system with inspectors to check proof of payment. And it, it, it's just that is the one place where you can move quickly. It also has a direct benefit for service because um, a little bit differently for, than subway and commuter rail, when you don't have to stop and pay to get on the bus, the bus can move faster and just keep going. We've seen that documented in the pilot that we've been running. Okay, I'm going to pivot now, Mayor Wu, um, as we talk about the relationship between the city and the state to um, a piece of news that is just very much in the forefront of everyone's minds, which is the um, the burden on the capacity of the emergency shelter system, the fact that as at, the, at the end of the day, Friday, we had in the Commonwealth um, about 650 families and growing on the wait list. These are all families that legally qualify for emergency shelter here in the Commonwealth. The governor and I had um, a challenging conversation about this uh, on Friday here on Radio Boston. Um, and then Friday afternoon, there was a conversation, a Zoom call about using the Melnia ACAS recreational complex as a large overflow shelter site. And, and clear, to be clear for listeners, overflow sites are a, a warm place to sleep at night. Uh, it's it's not a standard of care. It is not, you know, long-term viability. It is a warm place to sleep at night. Um, tell us your position as of today on whether or not it is appropriate to use the Melnia Cass Recreational Complex for that purpose. Well, I'll just start by saying there are no good options. And 
I know this from conversations with mayors around the country. You mean no good options for as physical space for overflow sites? Within a federal system that is broken and an exponentially increasing flow of people who are vulnerable and need services and safety while they are stuck waiting within a federal system for a response to whether they have legal status to stay in the country or not, um, the burden is falling on cities and states around the country. And in this case, the governor has been doing her very best to manage this, as every other um, executive is is needing to do around the country. Um, and Boston recognizes, you know, we are always a, a community that is going to step up in times of need. We are already hosting some 1,400 of the emergency assistance units out of the 6,000 or so that the state has, the largest by far of any community in Massachusetts. We are absorbing within our own city-level shelter system that's focused, uh, the state focuses on families, so women who are um, pregnant or, or with kids, and then individual adults falls to cities to take care of and provide shelter. And so in our system, even though it hasn't gotten as much attention, there's been a tremendous surge as well related to the migrant crisis for individuals who are not connected to a family arriving. We have now 25% of the spots within city shelters that are run directly by the city or by partners like Pine Street Inn. 25% are from individuals coming in, newly arrived through the migrant crisis. And, just, and we're having to open our own overflow for, at the at that local level as well. Just to clarify for listeners, at the state level, um, it is the family uh, shelters that are mandated by state law that the state must provide shelter, just so people understand the difference. That's Sorry, right. Go ahead. And so we take care of the other portion of that at the local level. And so our efforts, you know, everyone thinks of local shelters as focused on mass and CAS or um, individuals who are struggling with um, the opiate crisis and mental health challenges, but now a good 25% of the beds are for recently arrived new migrant um, individuals. And and again, we're having to now accommodate and put even more resources in. And so for the conversation to now be at a point um, statewide where we are moving to expand overflow spaces and for the first time take offline a space that wasn't just a formerly vacant building, but a community center specifically dedicated for seniors to have space to walk around on a track indoors or young people to have programming. I mean, my kids have participated in the track club that's at the the CAS um, in the past. It's one of the only free track programs in the city. And then for the first community where this is being proposed to be Roxbury, a community that over so many decades has faced disinvestment, redlining, disproportionate outcomes. It's very painful, and it's painfully familiar, I think, is what we heard most of all from residents on that Friday night uh, listening session that that um, some of the local elected officials, Senator Miranda, Representative Tyler, and Councilor Fernandez-Anderson had organized along with the state. And, um, you know, the city is, we will step up and we are already planning just so, you know, because the proposal was that this might even start as soon as Wednesday, Wednesday. Wait, of do this you week. have a choice? 
does the city this is have a, a choice? This is a state-run building, and so, so you don't do have not, a choice. This is, there, it is under the jurisdiction of the administration and you know and and at folks at the state level. So we you know we spent several hours yesterday um, meeting at the city level just to be prepared in case this decision is made to move forward as soon as this week. What would the our responsibilities be? Because it will fall to cities to manage the public works implications of just greater foot traffic in the area. Um, to be able to support replacing the programming facilities for programs that previously were located there, um, to ensure that residents have as little disruption and impact as they are looking to move around their daily lives and and have clear streets and and all of that, and for the needs that this population now potentially three to four hundred people in one location um, will will be. And so, what we heard from community was that it needed to be firmly held as proposed as a short-term relief valve during the winter because the center is used now and even more well used when the pool opens up in the summer and that there need to be some real commitments. Um, you know, and, and then the bigger picture is that... I'm going to pause you there yeah. because I, I, I am going to put in blunt terms what I think you're saying, which is, okay, we, we can't stop it, but really, this, this is the first place we're going to go? Basically, and you're nodding. That's what you're saying. That is um, across the board. You know, it, it feels a little bit like um, a particular, um, I don't want to know if, if it's called a pivot point or something. It, it feels... Inflection point? Yes. It feels like a particular inflection point when we are now taking offline buildings that are beloved and well used and dedicated to community programming because we now have such a crisis. And again, it's certainly not of the state's making and communities everywhere are but this moving choice through this. is a state choice. There and and I will say we have been working with the state to try to identify every other option that could happen in Boston. And in some ways we had already done this before and knew there were no good options. You know, this time around we did tour multiple other locations, vacant schools, other vacant private properties, and there was nothing that was ready to go uh, according to the state specifications that they 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 were wanting to move forward with. But we know that because the city a year ago when I or now almost 2 years ago when I um, had come into office in order to address Mass and Cass and the great needs there, we had already evaluated every possible vacant city building, piece of land, property that was available in order to try to carve out as much low threshold housing to accommodate the part of the housing crisis that we were most directly responsible for, which was around um, unsheltered individuals. And so we've done this already. We knew what the, the spaces were. None of them worked very well. And the ones that did work well, we used already for the uh, shelter that was needed. And so, you know, big picture, um, we need to continue pressure on the federal government. Um, tomorrow I'm in D.C. as part of that um, as part of the visit, I'm spending some time with Secretary Majorcus of the Department of Homeland Security to echo the governor's call for more resources and um, updates on the bigger picture because we saw the chart that the state presented on that Friday Zoom to community of at first it took five months for uh, a thousand new residents to come to the the Commonwealth and then it was two months for the next thousand residents and then it was a month for the next thousand residents. Um, and that pace doesn't show any signs of letting up. So how important does that make? Th this is an interesting moment then. Uh, and and um, 
all politics are local, right? So we are in a federal election year where we know that the debate at, uh, and the negotiations that are happening uh, in Congress right now about immigration uh, reform writ small, right? We're not talking about the big bill, but a small uh, bargaining session that's been going on um, is being stymied by um, former President Donald Trump, who is likely to be the Republican candidate. Um, does it feel like this federal election sits on the city of Boston in a way that maybe past federal elections have not? Everything that happens and doesn't happen at the national level always falls down to cities. And so that became especially clear after 2016, you know, in the time that the decade or plus that I've been in public office, that felt like a real shift when all of a sudden I it was a shock to realize that there were ways in which in 2017, after inauguration, we now had to prepare ourselves at the local level to be fighting against our own federal government to protect our residents. And so in some ways, we're kind of, you know, building back that muscle, I suppose, um, as we anticipate the horror of what cannot come to pass um, this year. But I will, You're I will say... You're referring to the election to, of Donald Trump as the next yes. president of the United States. But I will say that more than anything else right now, it can feel like this isn't about people at all, that this is about politics, this is about positioning, this is about clicks or donations or rhetoric that's trying to fuel this hate machine uh, preying upon fear-mongering. And then people are just falling through the cracks, and it's up to other levels of government to try to step in. People meaning our residents who already are facing a housing crisis and already, again, tens of thousands on a public housing agency wait list. And then people like newly arrived migrant families who are deeply traumatized and are just seeking basic life safety according to the asylum laws of the United States, but then are stuck in a system that is broken and pitting everyone against each other. And so, um, you know, we are going to do our very best at the city of Boston in city government to step up and provide leadership, provide services to be the very best partner we can to the state. Um, but it's also important to start to mark that we shouldn't be just pushing this conversation from one community to the next to the next of what's the next community center that's going to have to come offline and what's the next um, set of issues where we are going to be just scrambling to respond. Um, it We really need a, a, a more proactive approach, and that's some of what I'll hope to discuss tomorrow um, at, at the federal level. All right, let's end on a little moment of joy. Uh, you declared in the state of the city um, that in the first and second Sunday of every month beginning in February, several museums in the aquarium in the city will be free for Boston Public School students. Uh, what which one are you going to take the boys to first? It starts this Sunday. Um, we have not decided yet. Um, I, we will oh, I need to make sure that everybody realizes that it's coming up because the Sunday um, actually is the beginning of, of the new month. And so 
The way the system will work is that BPS families will get an email sometime this week with their unique code that they can show as a pass, or you can take your student ID for the older students who have an ID. We will probably bump this again at the end of the week. And I am already hearing plans from youth football teams who are going to get a bus together to go or uh, different families who are going to get all their friends. And I mean, this is really about sparking curiosity and wonder and preparing our young people in the very best ways to feel at home across the city. And it's also about building community, that these are spaces that really are about not just opening up your sense of individual wonder, but connecting with each other. All right. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We'll talk to you again next month. Great to be with you as always. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. Let's break down the many things we just heard from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu here in Studio 2, listening, a columnist from The Herald and from The Globe. So welcome back, Joe Battenfeld and Joan Vanaki. Joe, hey there. Hey, thanks. Great to have you, and welcome back, Joan. Nice to be here. So, Joe, you know, the theme we were looking for was the relationship between the city and the state. Your top headline after listening to that conversation. My top headline is for someone who was supposed to be so close to the governor, how she could not have stopped this um, Melnia Cass Recreation Center from being a home for uh, your overflow site for migrants. I find that hard to believe. I think if Mayor Wu had been out front of this and said, we're not going to take this, then I don't think the governor would have done it. So I just want to know what she what she's going to do now to to free this up. So where where are they going to come, you know, looking for next in the city of Boston? Why aren't they looking at suburban communities? Joan, what's your headline? Well, I have to agree with Joe that I think that's the headline of the day. I mean, she didn't say it, but there seems to be real tension between, you know, the governor and the mayor of Boston over this shelter issue. And um, it's kind of outrageous to me uh, that it, that Roxbury would be the first location that they choose. Maybe Michelle Wu is, is going to negotiate for some of those other things that you asked her about and say, if we give you this, we need to get that, be it the you know, transfer fee, rent stabilization, you know, free fare on the T or all those other issues. But, yeah, uh, this seems like a real – you said inflection point – I would say, you know, disagreement and point of tension. Uh, Joe Battenfeld of the Boston Herald, we've seen other inflection points between other mayors and governors. You know, do do you remember a moment like this, let's say, between Marty Walsh as mayor of Boston and Charlie Baker as governor during COVID? No, I don't remember anything like this um, because they were never asked. I don't I don't believe that Mayor Walsh or Mayor Tom Menino would have stood for this. I'm just guessing because they were always very protective of their community centers and how important they were to the communities. And I mean, just because the state owns it doesn't mean that it belongs to the state. It belongs to the people who live in that community. So you don't buy Mayor Wu's argument that as a state-owned building, she does not have control over its use? I think if she had made a real big stay about, stink about, we're not going to do this or we can't do this, then I don't think Mayor uh, the governor would have done it. So, uh, Joan Vanaki, Mayor Wu did sound like she felt quite protective of the community to me. D- do you agree with Joe Battenfeld that she could have done something about it? 
Well, I have a slightly different you know, sort of take on it. When you talk about Charlie Breaker and Marty Walsh, they were bros, right? It was the whole brother type thing. I have a feeling that Baker would have gone to Walsh and you know laid it out for him. It's possible that Maura Healy just did this without consulting Michelle Wu first so that it was kind of presented as a fait accompli. I mean, I don't know the, the timeline, but if that's the case, then she... She, uh, you know, just maybe just did an end run around Michelle Wu, and Michelle Wu is dealing with the aftermath. She did sound protective of the community, but she also sounds like, as Joe said, she she's saying there's nothing we can do about it. It's state-owned. So kind of having it both ways. So, Joan, I'll stay with you for a minute, because at the very beginning of the conversation that we had with Mayor Wu, and again, we're here with Joan Benaki and Joe Battenfeld, breaking down the conversation we just had with Boston Mayor Michelle Wu here in Studio 2 on Radio Boston, I asked her the nature of her relationship with Governor Healy, and she said it was quite close, that they were in pretty regular contact, that their staffs talked all the time. Um, it sounds like you're saying it's possible that this case example where the state is intending to use the Melnia Cass Recreational Center as an overflow shelter might sort of belie that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the truth of their relationship. To me, it didn't sound like they were best friends. I mean, she said they texted. She said she's been up to her off to the governor's office a few times. She said the staff spoke every day. Um, it, you know, I could be wrong. I think it's it's worth exploring just how close the relationship is. But it doesn't sound like Marty and Charlie, to me at least. So, Joe Battenfeld, how, uh, let's put this in the larger context. You, you know, I mentioned Marty Walsh. You mentioned Tom Menino. And, of course, Tom Menino was the mayor since, what, 1992. So uh, we're, we're talking about kind of uh, other than the time with uh, acting mayor Kim Janey, we're sort of talking about all the mayors for a very long time here. But what is the common expectation in Massachusetts, that there's a tight relationship between the mayor of Boston and the governor of Massachusetts or not? I think there's always been tension between the city of Boston and the state leaders because you go going way back decades when the state started taking away control from the city, from things like pl- the planning and city planning process. That's why they created the planning to, uh, agency. And um, there's, so there's always been tension, um, and there, but there's been an expectation that somehow the city has to bear these burdens that other places don't have to bear. And this is coming true now once again in Roxbury. So, and I'll just note, when I say 92, Minion was elected in 92, uh, right? Uh, 93, no, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so back to you, Joan Vanaki. Do you agree? Uh, and how, in, you know, what would you want to see, given everything? I, you know, what's also ringing in my head, Joan Vanaki, is uh, Mayor Wu's statement about the importance of this election year uh, for the city of Boston. What do you want to see? Where do you want to see these two in the most lockstep, Joan Vanaki, over the next year? Well, I, I think, you know, if you put it in the national context, you know, what's happening with the migrants and the shelters, um, you know, that's a national issue right now. And, you know, Michelle Wu, being from the progressive side of the political table, I, you know, she has to walk a line. I mean, she can't look like she's right, like she's doesn't want migrants in the city of Boston, that she can't find shelter space for them. So there's 
that piece of it too. But again, I mean, that that's the first place or that that's the first place that's not vacant, as she said, that that's used by a community, that the state says, this is where we're going. I don't know about that. Um, as you said, really? <laughs> All right, we'll end there. Boston Globe columnist Joan Venaki, Boston Herald columnist Joe Battenfeld, thanks for joining us today to put some of that in context. Hey, thank you. Thank you.